you know, we have that fear, you know, what if it doesn't work out? But we don't allow ourselves to actually go there and to really think through, well, what if it doesn't work out? What does my crash and burn worst case scenario actually look like? Hi, my name's Kurt Mercadante, and I'm a husband, father, speaker, trainer, and disruptive entrepreneur whose mission is to save the world by helping individuals fight for lives of freedom and fulfillment. And that's what this show is about. We're here to help you fight apathy and conformity in your life. We're here to interview and tell the stories of individuals around the world who are helping others live lives of freedom and fulfillment as well. This is the Freedom Club Podcast, and we're grateful you're here. And welcome to another episode of the Freedom Club Podcast. I'm your host, Kurt Mercadante as always. And I know I always say it, but I really, truly mean it. I'm very grateful and thankful you are here joining us today. And you are going to be very grateful and thankful you took the time to join us because we have yet another wonderful guest today. We have Dorothy Ilson. And, you know, looking at her story, she came to that fork in the road way before I did. You know, I was close to 40 before I realized I lacked freedom and fulfillment. I don't regret anything I had gone through because it brought me where I am today. She attended Miami of Ohio University. I had a lot of friends attend Miami and I have some really crazy fun weekender (laughs) stories traveling down from the University of Iowa. I remember, actually, total aside, I was there once and playing at, I can't remember, it was a little place where they had live music um, it was before they were big and we were there that weekend, uh, Hootie and the Blowfish were playing oh, no before they were like Hootie and the Blowfish, you know, it was, it was interesting. Um, but Miami of Ohio came out, moved to Chicago, got that corporate job for a, one of the big, I don't even know how many there are. There's still six or there are four or there are three big six accounting firms. Big four last time I checked. Big four. <laughs> there, it used to be big six and then mm-hmm. all the stuff happened. And so I don't even Arthur pay attention Anderson. anymore. And you came to a recognition and a realization that that's not the path you wanted to take. You made that change before you went too far down that path, which I applaud you for. You started your own digital agency, Needles Eye Media, which we're going to talk about because you're rebranding. I was on your podcast, Wonderful Progress Podcast. Do good and be well. Do well and do good. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, do well and do good uh, podcast. I was on it. Uh, Wonderful time. Dorothy Ilson, thanks so much for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. So I only have one set question that I ask my guests. And I told you before we hopped on, because I, I, sometimes I forget and then I hit people with it and they're like, oh man, I have no idea. And I kind of hit you. It was only five minutes ago, right? This is the Freedom Club podcast. And I always ask my guests, what does the word freedom mean to you? And you know, there are a variety of answers we've gotten. Some political, social, economic, philosophical, psychological, relationship freedom, health freedom. But there's all these common themes, whatever they're talking about. So I I ask you that question, Dorothy. What does the word freedom mean to you? Yeah, so it's actually something that I spend a good amount of time thinking about because, you know, I I would actually say that freedom is the number one value that I hold uh, in my business. And to me, what that really means is control. Um, you, you know, I think I, as you said, you know, I was set to go down, you know, a very traditional corporate path. And then I really, you know, took a, a hard left and went in a totally different direction. And the thing that I came to value most dearly, uh, you know, in my work first, you know, working for uh, three and a half years or so for a startup and then starting my own business, it was 
my autonomy, you know, my, um, my ability to control what the days of my life look like. You know, I think we spend so much of our lives working. I mean, just in terms of, you know, sheer number of hours that to me, you know, having control over what that time looks like is, is a very important thing. You know, I, I don't ever want to be in a situation where, you know, I'm spending 60 plus percent of my days, um, you know, doing something that, that I'm not excited about, that I'm not interested in, um, you know, or, you know, if I want to, um, you know, if I want to take a month long honeymoon next year when I get married, or if I want to, you know, drop everything and go be with my family because there's something going on, you know, having the control to be able to do that um, is really the way that I think about freedom at this point in my life. The, you know, there's, there's obviously a lot of talk about, especially from people my generation and older, um, and I'm coming to realization that I'm old, you know? <laughs> so all the talk about, you know, millennials or Gen Z, and some people throw out the, and, and, and I got to admit for some select people, although I don't do it generationally, I do it. There's people who are older than me, you know, they throw out the term snowflake or entitled. And, and there was a situation, um, I guess two months ago, it must've been August. It was preseason football and former multi-time, you know, pro bowler, Andrew Luck, who played for the Indianapolis Colts. He was injured yet again. He's rehabbing in a preseason game, just what a week or two before the season started, he came up and he said, I'm done. I'm retiring. And I think he'd only played six seasons. Right. And so mm-hmm. half the people were like, go, you determine what freedom and fulfillment is in your life. And he basically said, listen, it's not fun anymore. I'm hating it. I hate showing up now. I've been in pain for years. So half the people were like, that's awesome. You know what you want to do and you go and do it. I was in that camp. The other half were like just another entitled snowflake millennial. And it's one of those things where I think that there are instances where, yes, certain people in this world, and I don't even do it generationally. Again, I do it. There are people I met 55 who need to slap in the face, cold water and say, toughen up, you know, but people have to determine that there's a difference between, you know, Gallup's done a lot of studies of today's workforce and millennials and Gen Z they don't want job satisfaction. They want to be developed. They don't want bosses. They want coaches. They want fulfillment, which is wonderful. The, you know, there, there's that toughness factor, but there's, there's also a lot of folks who are like, no, my life and job sucked for 30 years. Therefore, your life has to suck for 30 years. Otherwise, it doesn't mean anything and you're entitled. There's exactly. a fine line, isn't there? <laughs> no, I mean, I, it's, look, it's hilarious to me. Like, so, the, so that, uh, that guy you talked about, you know, the, the athlete, like how much money did he make in those six seasons? Right. I mean, right. I'm however many millions and millions. I mean, he doesn't need to play football. And so anyone who's saying like, oh, you're, you're entitled, uh, you know, an entitled snowflake for you know, not wanting to do that anymore, he's probably been more successful in those six years than they have in their entire lives. And so what, what, is, the, what is the point of him continuing to do something that he doesn't want to do? I mean, for what? For, for ego, for pride, you know, for what they think of him. It's just, it's just absolutely absurd to me. And so I think those comments come primarily, I would imagine, from people who maybe aren't as happy as they could mm-hmm. be with their own choices. Um, and, you know, I, 
I'll be honest with you. I have zero patience for the millennial bashing that you hear so often because uh, first of all, I think it's interesting that the people who tend to be complaining about millennials are the same people who raised the millennials. Yeah, right, Um, right. And so I think there's a degree of responsibility there, but also just recognizing that we live in a completely different world today than we did when the baby boomers were growing up. And uh, I would argue that we live in a world that has a lot more choice available. Um, and you know, I feel myself just so incredibly blessed and and frankly privileged to have the ability to you know kind of live life on my own terms and you know create a biz- the business that I've built that allows me to have complete freedom in my life and, and complete control, as I mentioned before. Um, and so, you know, I, I just, I, I, I guess I don't see the, um, uh, the, the point, for lack of a better word, in, right. in a lot of those arguments. And if we are able to, to live lives that fulfill us and excite us and, you know, help us to feel that purpose then the only reason that we wouldn't do that is because we're scared of what other people think about us or what they're saying about us behind our back, which is a silly way to live when we only get, you know, one one shot at this. Yeah. And 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 I think that well your point about that the millennials were raised, who were they raised by? And a lot of people complaining are the people who raised them. Um or or let others raise them because they didn't pay attention <laughs> in many cases. But you know, you look at the Andrew Luck thing. And a lot of those people who are complaining are people who are sitting on the couch on their 13th beer who wouldn't know what real pain is and playing through pain. But I think that, um, as I said, when I'm critical, and I, I don't like using the word critical, there are people who are 60 who need to toughen up. And there are people who are 55, 50, who have been through some things in their life who are so afraid to do what you did, which was say goodbye to the path that is safe, but isn't fulfilling, right? Um, And start your own business, risk it. And I think of, there was a a book D-Day by Stephen Ambrose. He talked about D-Day. When they, the soldiers they sent to storm the beaches were actually the soldiers who had never seen battle before. The older soldiers who had been through one or two battles were so gun shy, literally gun shy, that they wouldn't have stormed the beaches like the ones who were like 18 and who were like, let's go get them, let's go get them. And they were starry eyed. And so I think there's some of that too, that the people 40, 45 are so gun shy of doing anything, which is why I always love to showcase folks like yourself who said, listen, I am not going to put my head down and give up 20 years of my life spent waiting for something or playing by someone else's rules or give up that autonomy that you talked about. And you're also, you know, you talked about that word privilege. There are some people who use the word privilege almost as an excuse for guilt and stagnation. Like, well, I should just be happy with what I have and stay put. You're like, no, I'm privileged and I'm going to do something with that and build my own company. Right. Well, I mean, I firmly believe that we create our lives. We create them exactly uh, in the in the image that we hold for ourselves. And if we can create our lives, then you know, why wouldn't we create it to be exactly the way we want it? And you know, some of the comments that I get from you know people in you know kind of the baby boomer generation 
are hysterical, honestly. I mean, I was at I was at a wedding. This was probably a year ago at this point, and I was talking to you know so, some some woman there. She was asking me what I was doing, and she was probably you know in her sixties. And I told her, "Oh, I'm self employed. You know, I, I have I have my own business." And she was just like, "Oh, like why?" It, basically, I like asking like, "Why would you want to do that?" And all of the the points she kept bringing up of you know, gosh, aren't you worried about security? And like, what if the economy tanks and X, Y, Z? And she would say, she said, um, she's like, well, what about healthcare? Like, isn't it, isn't it difficult to get healthcare? I'm like, I literally, I paid 300 bucks a month for, you know, for government healthcare. You know, it's, it's just such a minuscule thing um, to like nitpick at, you know? And so it's just interesting to me, like, where do those questions come from? You know, I think that they likely come from a place of, of fear, uh, you know that that most people just yeah. aren't interested or or don't want to, um, y- you know, to live in this way. Um, where there's nothing wrong with that, too. You know, I think that's another thing is you know it's easy for people who are entrepreneurial to kind of get up on a pedestal and act as if you know that's what everyone should be doing. And I don't think that's true either. I mean, you know, some people prefer to work in a large company in a corporate environment, you know, that is what they want. So I think it's, it's more about um, taking away the judgment, uh, you know, judgment of other people and judgment of ourselves uh, and just doing what excites you, you know, doing what, what fills you up and, and what makes you, uh, you know, feel like you have freedom in whatever way that that actually, you know, means for you as an individual. Did you grow up in an entrepreneurial family? Yes. So my dad, uh, my dad is a business owner. My mom uh, became an entrepreneur later in life. Um, But interestingly, it was not really my plan. Um, My father in particular, you know, he really imparted in me the importance of hard skills. So, you know, soft skills being, you know, uh, being good with people, you know, communication, that kind of thing. Um, Hard skills being engineering, math, accounting. He was like, you know, go and learn something that no one can ever take away from you. Um, And so, you know, I really was, you know, in this mindset of a very traditional kind of career path and what that would look like uh, in accounting was the the field that I chose. And so despite my parents, you know, both being entrepreneurs, um, it was something that I, you know, really wasn't at the forefront of my mind until I discovered personal development my senior year of college. It's fascinating because the there's a reason I asked that question. I've been I become obsessed over the last month or so with um, epigenetics. I don't know if you're familiar with epigenetics, mm-hmm. but the power of belief on your physical body and your 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 reality, right? And Dr. Joe Dispenza and Bruce Lipton talk about the conscious and the subconscious and how on a daily basis, ninety five percent of our day of our functions are controlled by the subconscious, which is basically your heart's beating, mm-hmm. you're walking, you know, you're not thinking about that. And your conscious is like, Hey, this is what I want to do. This is what I want to do. And you brought up at the forefront of my mind. The interesting part is at Bruce Lipton contends that the first seven years of your life is your programming, basically where your computer programs are locked in. You can reprogram that through affirmations, through other things. But a lot of it, if you don't reprogram that, is in your software program. And so it's interesting that while your dad was saying, you know, you got to do those hard skills, you got to do those hard skills, which I would say having that kind of of conversation might have been in your, you said forefront, might have been in your consciousness. The 95%, the subconsciousness might have been programmed by your parents' 
coming home every day, starting their own business, you seeing that and that just developing in your mind, which is why your conscious brain was like accounting, accounting, accounting. But when it time to, came to, time to actually do it, your subconscious took over and said, no, I'm going to go and do this, which is so interesting because, you know, I have some siblings, but they were not all my parents each were married before. Let me put that way. I don't know how I was going to say that. They were each married before. Some of my siblings did not have, were not programmed under my father who was an entrepreneur. Some of us were. The ones who were entrepreneurs and hated the nine to five. The other ones weren't. And so that's, it, that's what's fascinating. It's, as soon as you said uh, that they were entrepreneurs, so it, it, might, it, it might be in your DNA programs from birth uh, being an entrepreneur. Yeah, who knows? You know, I think... <laughs> It was stumbling on this whole world of, of personal development and, and personal growth and uh, that maybe activated what was kind of laying there dormant, just waiting to come out. <laughs> so what, um, you start your business and, you know, I, I talked to one, one of the biggest fears when people start a business that I always run into, even if these people have like incredible resumes, right? Like 20 year long resumes is I'm not worthy. Who's going to want to hire me, Right you jump in, you didn't have a long track record and you're like, screw it. I'm going to do it. And I'm going to start this. And you have clients and you're doing successful. What would you tell someone who just has that blank slate and is so fearful not being worthy? You're someone who said, I don't care. I'm going to build a business anyways. Yeah. I mean, I certainly don't want anyone listening to this to think that that's what it was like, because it certainly wasn't. You know, I had all of those fears as well. Uh, you know, if, if I could count the number of times in the first, you know, first six months or so where I was just sobbing, you know, thinking, how the hell am I ever going to figure this out? You know, it, it's, it's pretty wild looking back. But, you know, I think for me, it's, it's two things. So one, it is working equally hard on your mindset as you are on your business. So, you know, my, you know, my business does quite well, but it's interesting to me like if you if you look at the the profit margins of my business, they could be a hell of a lot higher if I wasn't spending so much money on masterminds, on hypnotherapy, on coaching. Like I pour into myself and I see the results in that in the revenue, in the profits of my business. Um, you know, I have created this, this business that, that really opens up doors for me. I mean, that, that gives me a lifestyle that I never dreamed that I could have in my 20s to be able to travel the way that I do, to be able to um, you know, make the kind of money that I do and, and have this lifestyle. Um, you know, it, it just... It never would have happened if I hadn't of in, been investing in myself and you know and really working deliberately on my mindset and on my feelings of self worth. Uh, because if you don't feel like you deserve it or you, you don't feel like um, you, you know like you should have what what you want, then it's you're going to block it. You're going to self sabotage. You know it's never it's never going to happen for you. So I think that's part of it. And then the second thing that I would encourage, you know, anyone listening to this who has those fears of like, you know, well, what if I really go after this and it doesn't work out? I think it's a really empowering thing to get comfortable with your worst case scenario. So, so often, you know, we have that fear, you know, what if it doesn't work out? But we don't allow ourselves to actually go there. 
and to really think through, well, what if it doesn't work out? You know, what does my crash and burn worst case scenario actually look like? And that seems like a scary thing to do, but the reality is, is that when you go down that road, what you often find is that the worst case scenario kind of not as bad as, as you think it is. Um, and so for me, what that looked like was, you know, I, I left, uh, at, I was 25 years old and leaving this startup that I'd worked for since I left school. And I had this idea of, you know, well, what if I went out on my own? What if I, what if I tried to, to make something happen by myself? And the situation I was in was, you know, I knew I was leaving this company anyway. So if I'm not going to start something on my own, then I'm going to have to go get a job. Now, just knowing my skills and, and, you know, the job market that we're in, you know, I felt very confident that I could get a job quickly. And so if I actually go down that road of, you know, say I go off on my own and it doesn't work out. Well, what does that look like? Okay. So, you know, I, I grind, I grind, I grind it out. And it's not working. I'm not making money. I've blown through any money that I had. I, uh, you know, reached the end of my rope. And what's next? Well, I got to go get a job, which was the situation I was in anyway. So it really looked no different. Um, it was the only difference in that scenario is that I tried. And so to me, whereas all of my, you know, all the people in my life who just cared about me and wanted the best for me were saying, but this is so risky. It's so risky. It's so risky. I was thinking, well, what is the risk? I, I try and it works or I try and it doesn't work and I have to go get a job. But having to go get a job is the current situation. So, I, so if, if that makes sense, you know, I think it's, yeah. it's a really empowering thing to get comfortable with your worst case scenario and then recognize that maybe it's not as scary as you thought. And the scarier scenario is not going for it and then wondering for the next 40 years, you know, how things could have been different. Yeah. I, I always, at clients, even clients, you know, who have mortgages, four kids, all that, which was me when I decided to shut down my agency at peak revenue, right? Is I call it the destitution line. Like what's that line under which you, like you lose the house and whatever. Yeah. And they always come up with a number and I expect them to come up with some huge number. And it's never that big of a number. I'm like, you right. serious? I said, well, your product offering is this. All you need is two clients, one a month. And by the way, when do you need to make that buy? Well, three months. I'm like, just get a client a month. Yeah. And when you, when you break it down like that, because often when people don't allow themselves to go there, they don't reverse engineer to get over that line. And then they just get paralyzed. And they think mm -hmm. I need a hundred clients or I need 10 clients. It's like, all you need is one and then another one and then another one and then reverse engineer how you're going to get there. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I think, I think that's a great point. And, you know, I also recognize kind of going back to this word privilege, I recognize that I, I was in a privileged situation. You know, I am, uh, I'm, I was not married. I don't have any children. I really don't have any responsibilities outside of, you know, feeding myself and, and keeping a roof over my head. And so that's the scenario that, that I had to approach it from. You know, maybe it is different for certain people. You know, maybe you do have kids, maybe you do have, you know, a mortgage. And so it looks different for you. But I think sometimes it's difficult for us to see our own realities. You know, we're kind of too close to the situation. Um, I was at a mastermind event um, back in February and 
we were doing like hot seat scenarios. And so, you know, one of the guys was, was up there, you know, having his, having his hot seat in front of everyone. And he had a, an online business. Uh, and then he also had a traditional, you know, his traditional nine to five job. And his goal, you know, he said, first thing, he's like, you know, my goal is to quit my nine to five and do this online business full time. And then we went through, you know, literally like an hour of his hot seat of, you know, just talking business strategy and what he was doing. And then the the guy leading the uh, the event, he asked him, he's like, oh, by the way, how much runway do you have? Because it came out in the course of the conversation that the online business was actually making more even then than his nine to five. And so he said, you know, how much runway do you have? You know, how long could you go if your online business stopped making money today and you didn't make a dollar? How long could you go without an income before you'd be in trouble? And what was his answer? Three years. Oh my gosh. He literally had three years of savings. He could sustain his mortgage. You know, he, he had a baby on the way. You know, he would be fine if his online business didn't make another single dollar. And so the only thing that was holding him back from achieving what he had said his goal was to quit the nine to five and do his online business full time. The only thing holding him back was his own fear and his own inability to see his situation for what it was. And so he actually left that night and, and quit his job that night and came back the next day and said he'd submitted his letter of re- re- resignation. And so, you know, I think it's obviously that's also a very unique situation, but it's important to kind of step outside of yourself and really look at what what your reality is. And oftentimes it's it's not as dire as you might feel. Yeah. Yeah. And you'll never know. I have a client who left her job and had like three months before she had to, it was two or three months that she was there. It was going to be like they were until they got a new president to replace her. And she was like terrified. Mm-hmm. And what am I going to do? Here's how much I need. I'm like, that's all you need per month? Well, go do this, do this. Before she even left, she, she surpassed what she needed a month with one client. And it was like, you would have never known that unless you just took a few steps forward. And, um, and now she's, you know, at one point I drained my bank account down to 500 bucks with four kids and a mortgage. That was scary, but you know what? I was killing myself the other way. So <laughs> I figured either way, if I'm going to die, I'm going to go out with guns blazing, you know? Um, mindset. So I, I love that you talk about investing in yourself from a mindset perspective hypnotherapy, uh, masterminds, all those things. Do you have a daily kind of routine that primes you, primes you for a day of, uh, whether it's visualization, affirmations that, that, that gets you going? Yeah, depends on the week you ask me. So <laughs> uh, yes, in, yes, in theory, in reality, I am not as consistent with it as I could be. Um, but there is a very clear correlation in you know my uh, my revenue and my profits hmm. and my my happiness, frankly, uh, there's a clear correlation between that and how consistent I have been that week or that month, uh, you know, with my routine. And so, what it looks like for me is, uh, you know, I I am someone who uh, I operate the best on a lot of sleep, so I do not agree with the like hustle your face off, like totally get five hours of sleep thing. Um, I tried for a long time to force myself into being someone who wakes up at 5am and I just realized 
you know, this is actually hurting my performance. So why am I doing this to myself? So (laughs) I literally like I go to bed at 10 o'clock. I wake up at seven. I get nine hours of sleep. It is amazing. Uh, I get up in the morning. I exercise. Um, so, you know, I, I'm looking as I did because I just actually came back from the gym for this interview. <laughs> um, but then after I exercise, I meditate uh, anywhere from five minutes to, to 30 minutes. Uh, and then journaling. So journaling, I have found, is the most powerful mindset practice for me. And the way that I journal, um, I actually do it like in a Google Doc on my computer. Uh, and I basically just like brain dump, like stream of consciousness style journaling about my goals uh, as if they were already achieved. So, you know, when I first started my business, it was journaling about, you know, how it would feel when I had my first $10,000 month, Um, you know, what kind of results my clients would be getting, Um, you know, the, the emotional state that I would be in. And then once I hit that goal, then I started journaling about my first $20,000 month, then my first $30,000 month. And it's like, you know, every time you you achieve something. It's it's so funny to like look back in my journal from like six months earlier about uh, you know what I was uh, intending for myself and to see wow it actually happened that way. So uh, it's a it's a very powerful practice that has served me well. That's that's excellent and yeah I'm with you on the sleep and people make fun of me and they're like I'm ju- I'm just fine on four hours I'm like but you're not. You're not like you think you're okay, but there's like studies that uh, one study, I think actually it's two separate studies. I think one was out of France. One was out of uh, a research institution near Detroit that found like under six hours of sleep or under five hours of sleep is like the equivalent of going through the day, having drank a six pack of beer. Um, And you think you're okay, but you're not. Your stress hormones start Mm -hmm. coursing through your veins and then you're just not at your peak. So that's great to hear because I think there's way too many hustling grind. I call them hustling grind pornographers out there <laughs> telling, telling you that, you know, sleep when you're dead and they're posting yeah. pictures of like, I'm sleeping under my desk at WeWork and I'm so awesome because of it. It's like, yeah, I don't know. I think you could be more successful if you got a few extra hours of sleep. Right, right. Well, I think the other important piece of this too is understanding that you're never going to hit your goal you might achieve a goal that you had stated, but by the time you get there, by the time you achieve it, you're already going to have layered on another one. You know, just as humans, this is what we do. We're, you know, we're never, we're never finished. Uh, and so, you know, I think that it is a dangerous, um, a dangerous game to play where you're so focused on achieving something that you are, you know, not getting any sleep, you're not, you know, spending time with your family, with your friends, you know, you're not doing things that you enjoy and that fill you up because you feel like you just need to be grinding all the time to achieve this goal. But that's dangerous because even once you achieve it, you know, when is enough enough? Uh, and so just recognizing that you know, we're never going to get to the finish line, that, that it's always going to be a process. It's always going to be a journey. It is a very liberating, a very um, freeing, if I may, thing to make sure that we are enjoying the journey and make sure that, you know, freedom, it's not just about a future freedom. It's about having freedom in the now and making sure that, you know, you are designing your life in a way that if you were to die tomorrow, you know, you wouldn't have regrets. I, uh, last year, I interviewed uh, Isaac Morehouse, who's a friend, but he started a uh, apprenticeship startup called Praxis. And now he's got Crash. 
io crash.co i can't remember it, it's trying to revolutionize like the resume process and job application process. And one of the things he said is that it's interesting that people would hear, like you and I, talk about sleep or talk about uh, getting in the flow and talk about these things where you're building your business without like putting a dagger through your heart, right? Where you're doing these things. And what, they, what they'll equate is um, like working hard with hating what you do. And they'll equate being in the flow and working with more of a flow versus the grind with being like a life of ease, right? Mm-hmm. And, and, and loving. And what he said was, you know, hate doesn't equal hard. Like he said, you know, he had an easy life. He had these jobs. He had a nine to five and he hated it. Then he decided that he was going to do a startup. It was the hardest thing he ever did, but he loved it. Um, you were on that path, right? Of... Maybe it was going to be easier to do it, but you would have hated it. Now, I mean, I would assume that starting a business from scratch, I mean, you talked about that process of being in tears and the fear was darn hard. Yeah, yeah. But you love it. Right. I mean, so actually, it's it's funny you you say it in that way because literally just yesterday, um, someone asked me what the hardest job I've ever had was. And I was like, this one for sure. <laughs> right, I mean, right. it's it's what I'm doing. I mean, whether it's not not exactly a job, but this is easily the hardest thing that I have done. Um, the most stressful thing. The most, um, you know, the the most the most incredibly difficult and beautiful and fulfilling and amazing thing at the same time. Uh, You know, I think it's easy to idealize what life looks like, you know, as a business owner, as an entrepreneur, you know, as someone who has freedom. It's not like my stress is gone. My stress is different. And my stress is, again, under my control. So, you know, I talked about how, you know, freedom means control to me. Uh, the things that I'm stressed about in my business, you know, the things that, um, you know, that, that keep, me, uh, keep me up at night, they're things that, that I'm going after. They're things that, you know, I'm dictating what goals I'm chasing, you know, what clients I'm saying yes to, you know, what my life looks like. And so I'd rather have that stress than the stress that I'm not in control over. But, you know, it's not like there's no stress. So I think it's, it's so important to, um, you know, choose, choose your problems. And, and the bigger problems that you solve, by the way, you know, the, the more money that you'll make and, and the more successful that, that you will be. So I think having control over that is something that is, uh, you know, very important to me. So speaking of your tough job that you love, <laughs> Needles Eye Media... So this is the company you founded, the company you've built. You've talked about revenue goals, revenue landmarks that you've had, or milestones that you've hit. Um, you also said before offline that you're going to kind of rebrand the name and all that. What, um, tell me about the company, what kind of clients you serve, um, and the kind of outcomes you deliver for them. Yeah, absolutely. So, so we are a paid traffic agency. We run traffic on Facebook and on Google. So search YouTube display. Uh, and our clients are, are all across the board, but our, our biggest niche, the, the people who we really serve the best, uh, tend to be personal brands and digital product sellers. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, people who, you know, they, they have an offer that converts, that's working, you know, maybe they're, they're doing, 10, 15, 20, $30,000 a month, but they want to be doing 
$250,000 a month. So helping uh, those businesses to scale their customer acquisition and their client acquisition uh, by leveraging paid traffic is, is really what we do and do very well. Where do you see, um, you know, you see Zuck getting pulled before Congress, um, most of whom don't know even how to turn on their computer. I mean, some of the questions they ask him are, are really, really interesting to say the least. Uh, but you see him doing that. And, you know, I used to have an agency and we did a lot of online advertising. And you see um, uh, in the policy world, Facebook's pulling back on some things. Um, because it's just not worth it for them, especially in the political realm, the public policy realm, those types of things. But I also, um, I have a friend, Eric Carlson, who's done, I don't know, he does like a million dollars worth of Facebook ads a month. And he's really upset because every time they bring him before Congress and all this stuff, all of a sudden you see Facebook tightening up and it's affecting the things that small businesses can do. Then you see Google and Google's on. Where do you see the landscape changing over the next five years in terms of digital with whether it's people coming under fire, you know, the, the, the giants yeah. coming under fire from DC or the public or, you know, missteps that they make and all that good stuff? Yeah, I, I personally don't believe that history is going to be very kind to Mark Zuckerberg. <laughs> um, and I think that these platforms, they, they have a big problem in front of them. And people are waking up to, um, you know, to the ways that you know, we as consumers have been really taken advantage of. And, um, and you know, our data has been monetized without us you know, getting any, any piece of that pie. Um, and so, you know, in terms of how things are going to change, I think those restrictions are going to keep coming and they're going to get, uh, they're going to get bigger and bigger. We might see the end of pixels. We might see the end of, uh, you know, custom audiences and, and digital retargeting in the way that we know it today. But I think the important thing to remember is that no matter what happens, no matter what changes uh, that these platforms make in terms of you know what's available to us as advertisers, you know what what kinds of things we can track on our websites and and how we can leverage that to make more money. What's not going to change is people are going to still buy shit. <laughs> people are still going to see ads, e-commerce. You know, people are still going to continue to buy things online in greater and greater numbers. So the only things that are going to change are the strategies and the tactics that we're using to reach those people with the wallets. Um, but just like, just like how you know, advertising thrived in the days of newspapers and direct mail and catalogs and uh, you know, before we even had computers. And so I think to, to get into this, this the kind of like fear cycle that's so easy as an agency to get into of, well, what are, how are things going to change if pixels go away or whatever? It's just recognizing at the end of the day, the skill that we have is not about our retargeting strategy or you know, what we're doing with our custom audiences. It's about understanding human psychology and the foundation of direct response marketing in leveraging human psychology to get someone to, to make a purchase decision. And so the strategies might change, the tactics might change, but that is always going to remain the same. So there's, there's really no point in stressing about it. You know, we will continue to adjust and respond to the marketplace in whatever direction that it goes. 
I, I agree with you on the Zuckerberg thing. It's funny that I, I like to joke that the only ones in the world who can make Mark Zuckerberg look good is Congress. <laughs> <laughs> Just some of the questions they ask, it's like, oh my gosh. Um, so um, you built your business, you're building your business, you're growing your business offline. You said you're looking to expand and, and what, how, what is your, uh, your killer app? I, I use the word app, not in real sense, because our killer app for the last six months has been the phone and calling people. Um, but sales, what has been your proven best, you're in love with it method for getting new clients? Yeah, so I have spent millions of dollars profitably in paid traffic for my clients. I've never spent a single dollar on client acquisition for myself. Um, so uh, I have been very fortunate. You know, my business is built almost entirely off of referrals mm. uh, because we are limited in the number of clients that, that we can work with at any given time. Uh, you know, any time that you know, we've needed to go, go get a new client, I uh, basically just say, you know, hey, we're here. We've got a spot, <laughs> and um, <laughs> and it tends to get filled. But to get a little bit, um, you know, more practical for your listeners, um, you know, I think that it's it's really about, you know, how can you deliver value to people, um, you know, upfront and get them to trust you enough to feel confident about a buying decision. So, you know, when I do have someone new come into the world, you know, someone, uh, you know comes upon our website and inquires, or I do get a referral, you know, someone says, Hey, you know, this is the person to run your traffic. Um, you know, we still have to go through the sales process, right? So for me, typically that is an audit. Um, so I found the best way for me to qualify if um, we can actually help someone effectively is to, you know, look inside of their account and, and see what they're doing and, and what they could be doing better. Uh, and so we'll typically do an audit that's usually about uh, about three hours in total, you know, half of that being us, you know, looking inside the accounts, the other half of it being, you know, reviewing that and talking through it with the client. And by the end of that process, we've gone through in detail, you know, exactly what they're doing and the changes that we would recommend making. And so by the end of that, you know, they have a very clear roadmap for what working with us is going to look like. And we've gotten a chance to, you know, really kind of show our stuff and, um, you know, and uh, illustrate our, our expertise in a way that is, is very clear to the prospective client. So, um, so that's the beauty of doing audits. It's definitely my favorite sales tool. And by the end of it, uh, it's, it's, a pretty, it's a pretty simple close once you've shown them uh, exactly what that path looks like. Five years from now, where does your agency, whatever the name is, right? Mm -hmm. Coming in a couple weeks or months or whatever, five years, not, not just your company, but where are you? What does that look like? You know, it is, it's an ever moving target. I think I would have a different <laughs> answer to this, um, you know, de depending on the, the day, the week, the hour that you ask me. But, um, you know, for me, I, um, you know, I'm, I'm 28 years old. I want to have kids. Um, you know, I want to, I want to start a family. And so, you know, I think in five years, you know, I would like for my business to be in a place where, um, you know, where I've developed a very strong team around me so that we can serve our clients at an extremely high level. 
um, without me needing to be, you know, as involved in, in kind of every piece of what that looks like. And so uh, that's a goal that I'm constantly moving towards. Um, you know, I, I mentioned to you offline, we actually have two, two new hires starting on Friday. So, um, you know, building out the team is something that I'm very excited about, you know, over the next 12 months, especially. Um, but, you know, I would, I would love to get to a place where, you know, we can do that, but I can also serve more people. You know, I think the, the issue that I run into is that, you know, I get all of these leads coming in, you know, people who, um, you know, maybe aren't the right fit for us to actually run their traffic. You know, maybe it's a new business. They don't have a proven offer. Uh, they don't have the funds to be able to invest uh, in an agency like ours. So continuing to develop, uh, you know, new products and new opportunities for those people to um, be able to get the help that they need is a big goal of mine. So uh, what that's going to look like in, in 2020 and beyond is likely the development of more digital products so that I can serve more people than I can currently uh, with the way the agency is structured. So I'm 22 years old, 21 years old. I'm about to finish college. I'm majoring in, I'm going to pick some finance. And I'm majoring in finance because I didn't have entrepreneurial parents. And so they're like, going to finance, it's safe. Going to finance because that'll be safe. You'll be fine. You'll get a good paycheck and all that. But you've been going through it and deep down in your bones, you know, and you went through this. I don't want to do finance. I don't want to do finance. I want to do this. I want to do this. But your parents' voices in the back of your head, play it safe, play it safe. What would you tell me at that point? Yeah, I mean, that's basically the situation I was in, right? Yeah, I was, I majored, I did major in finance, actually, financing. Oh, really? accounting. <laughs> um, yeah, so funny. I example, always pick but... on the finance degree. I don't know why, but because I've known some people who majored in finance and then got to be 45 and they're like, I never liked finance and I've spent 25 years working in finance. So. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so I hesitate to give blanket advice because uh, everyone's situation is different. But for me, uh, I didn't want to start going down a path that I already knew I wasn't interested in. Uh, and so, you know, I didn't, I didn't ask my parents permission before I called up PwC and told them that, that I wasn't coming, you know, gave up that, that job offer. Um, you know, I just took that leap of faith and I had enough confidence in myself that I, I knew that no matter what happened, that I was going to land on my feet. And so uh, I think that came from the fact that I had spent the prior six months diving so deep into books and podcasts and YouTube videos and just really filling my mind with positive content and with affirming content um, and, and really thinking deeply about what was important to me. You know, is money the most important thing to me? Is security the most important thing to me? Is freedom the most important thing to me? And, and so I think everyone has to answer those questions for themselves, but it starts with your mindset. It starts with uh, how committed you are to learning and to personal growth. And so I don't think that it's necessarily a mistake for that person to, um, you know, go to that job while they figure out, you know, what their, what their leap is going to look like. But as long as you move down the path, as long as you, you know, are doing the hard work of learning about yourself and learning about the way that your mind works and, and the way that you can control your mind, um, and and holding that vision for what uh, you know what you want your life to ultimately be, and having that 
that faith, that trust, you know, that um, that confidence to to make a leap and know that even if what you're making the leap for doesn't work out, that something else will, that you're, you're going to figure it out. Well, on that note, Dorothy, thank you so much for joining us. Dorothy Ilson with Needles Eye Media, soon to be maybe something else, which we will change <laughs> in the show notes when that happens. Let me know. The link. Sure. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Kurt. It's been a lot of fun. 